I think many of you guys might be asking the question to yourself this morning, where in the world is Pastor Flager? 40 years of ministry, this is his last month to preach, this is the third Sunday and he's yet to be up here. Well, I'm going to say that Pastor Flager is to blame for the reason why I'm up here this morning. Let me tell you why. Back in January, he came to me, I'd never preached before, and he said, Ben, I'd like for you to preach one of my Sundays in February, and very reluctantly, I said yes, and as I got into the preparation, God really ministered to me through his word as I prepared to come before you guys to present what I thought his word was saying, and I knew after I got done that I wanted to do this again, so he came to me the first time, but I came to him the second time, and I said, Don, you've got four Sundays in June, surely you can give me one of them, and uh, he agreed, and I'm very thankful for him. Don is a He's meant so much to me in my sanctification over the last uh, 10 or 11 years as, as a believer. Uh, he's just, he's really ministered to me and, and taught me a lot, and he's been a big encouragement to me. But this morning, guys, I want to start off by saying that my intention is not to preach the same message that Jason preached last week. What I want to do is build on the foundation that he laid for us from the book of Galatians as to why a Christian needs the gospel. And I would encourage you, if you were here and you heard the message, or if you didn't hear the message, to go back and get on the website and just listen to that again. I listened to it Friday night after I kind of finished all my preparation for this, and it's about 40 minutes long, but it brought so much more encouragement. It just reminded me of my great need for the gospel. And as Jason mentioned last week, 30, 35, 40, 45 minutes, that's not enough to tell you why a Christian needs the gospel. Two Sunday sermons in a row are not enough to tell you why a Christian needs the gospel. We could do a six-month sermon series on this, and it would only be a grain of sand on the beach in comparison to why a Christian needs the gospel. You see, as was mentioned last week, the whole of Scripture points to Christ. If you remember in Luke's gospel, towards the end, chapter 24, this is after Jesus' death, his burial, the resurrection, two of the, two of the men are on the road to Emmaus. They're taking this seven-mile journey. And apparently they were in Jerusalem during the Passover. They probably witnessed the crucifixion of Christ, maybe. And all they know at this point is they were hoping that he was going to be the one to save Israel, save God's people. And they know that the tomb is empty, but that's all they know. And then, all of a sudden, the risen Lord walks up. And he starts walking with them on this road to Emmaus. And for some reason, he veils himself from them. They can't recognize that this is the risen Christ. But in chapter 24, verse 27, God's word tells us, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every time you open that book that you have in your hands, it points to Christ. And when it points to Christ it's undoubtedly going to point to the gospel. This message, why Christians need the gospel, generally speaking, can take on so many different angles that we as believers struggle with or are exposed to by our culture. And those angles demand exploration so the gospel can accomplish its purposes in our lives. So over the next little bit, we're going to take a look at one of those angles. We're going to take a look at the very thing that the Scripture says a born-again believer 
And Jesus Christ is no longer in bondage to or a slave to based off of who you are in Christ. But yet, this is something that we have to deal with and war against every single day. Our sin. Our personal sinning leaves us dazed and confused, sometimes wondering if we are really His, asking ourselves the question, what is wrong with me? Or at times, even if just for the briefest of seconds, finding pleasure in it. Oh, how the Christian longs for the coming of the Lord and the redemption of these sinful bodies. Guys, in my minimal experience preaching, part of my sermon prep involves how am I going to introduce the text to you? How am I going to get you ready for this passage of Scripture we're about to enter into? Do I pray? Well, I think that's good, and we are going to do that here in a few moments. Do I use an illustration? Do I tell a story, something from personal experience? Well, this morning, I decided to use a recent news event that I think everybody in this room, maybe the younger adults, maybe not the younger kids, but teenagers up to young adults and older adults should be familiar with. And guys, this is not a pleasant illustration, and I don't use this lightly. But I think it's going to prepare us to enter into this text of Scripture this morning. A little over 21 years ago, a young girl was abducted from a bus stop in South Lake Tahoe, California. And uh, she was 11 years old. And she had a family that loved her and cared for her deeply. In just a few brief seconds, guys, her life was changed forever. Eighteen years later, by the grace of God, 29-year-old J.C. Dugard was found. She had spent 18 years in captivity where unspeakable things took place against her by her captors. And now, free from captivity, she seems to be moving on with her life, rediscovering the family she once knew, and at the same time raising her children that she had as a result of that captivity. But guys, that still leaves the question. Moving on, yes, but what happens to the residual? We often say, what about the long-term effects, the memories, the experiences that no one but her will ever have to experience? And I use that illustration because it's only natural to expect someone who has went through a traumatic experience such as that to carry something forward with them from captivity over into freedom. And while that illustration has its limitations to the text this morning, what I want you to see is that as believers in Christ, we carry something forward with us when we pass from being under God's wrath, alienated from Him, and the child of the devil, as 1 John tells us, to being placed into the family of God, moved from darkness to light, spiritually reborn and freed from the captivity that we were once in, all as a result of having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We carry something forward with us. Sin. Now hear me out. We're no longer in bondage to it. We're no longer consumed by it. 
that you would be fooling yourself if you're here this morning and you say that you don't struggle with it as a born-again believer in Christ. How, how can this be? How can this issue we all have still persist and be present in our lives based off of what the Scripture says of who we are in Christ? And guys, the Bible teaches, yes, we are justified before God's sight because of Christ. The Father remembers our sins no more. They are as far as from the east as to the west. But we still struggle with it every single day of our lives. And in uh, preparing over the last month and thinking about what to preach on, I was reading through Romans 7. And the one thing that really just caught me off guard was the very end of that chapter. You see, in Romans, you have this man, Paul, who 30 years prior was awakened to who he was outside of Christ on that road to Damascus. And he was given the supernatural grace to believe the gospel. Then you have this man who spends the next 30 years, as Jason mentioned last week, deciding to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And his life was a testament of that because he took it. He took the gospel to the ends of the known earth of that day. And finally, guys, you have a man here who performed the very signs, wonders, and miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling him to the glory of the Father. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ himself. And this man says something in verse 21 of Romans chapter 7 that just, it just floored me. It blew me away. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think to answer that question this morning, we don't go to verse 25. At least, not yet. To answer this question, we need to first talk a little bit more about the issue itself. And a great place to go is obviously the scriptures. But what I found in my preparation, guys, is that we need to hang out in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 for a little bit. So, before we get started this morning... We need to pray. We need to fervently seek God's face to illuminate his word to us, to see what he is telling us from his word. So at this time, I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, our sin is something that we struggle with every single day. It's so difficult at times to deal with it. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we try to deal with it, but the methods we use just don't seem to help. I pray, Father, through your word, that you illuminate the scriptures to us and help us understand how to deal with this. We simply ask, Holy Spirit, that you come at this time and move in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I, I don't have a PowerPoint this morning uh, with all the scriptures on it. I do apologize for that. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, guys, I'm sure your neighbor will let you look off of their Bible if you just scoot closer to them. Uh, 
we're primarily going to be in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans. And I'm going to do my best to navigate these sections that I'm going to speak on in a clear way to make it easy for you to follow. So at this time, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Now, before we start with verse 1, we need to realize what's going on at the end of chapter 5. Paul basically finishes up chapter 5 talking about how Adam basically brought physical and spiritual death to the human race through his disobedience. But he doesn't say that Adam is to blame because in the very next breath of verse 12 of chapter 5, he says that all men experience death because all have sinned. Not just Adam, which shows that mankind has personal responsibility for their sinning. And he finishes chapter 5 out talking about the result of the grace of God found in the person and the work and the character of Christ and what a relationship with him brings to man. We get the righteousness of Christ when we respond to the gospel. We're justified before God. And he ends chapter 5 out with this idea about how the grace of God found through a relationship with Christ will always overcome someone's sin and who they are in Adam. No one can ever be so sinful that God's grace can't save. It's impossible. Anyone who responds to the gospel in repentance and faith, God will save. But then you get to chapter 6, and something kind of strange happens. Because when you get through 6, and you go throughout 6 and chapter 7, Paul's going to ask some questions that kind of threw me off at first. Because I kept wondering, after I read through Romans, the book as a whole, I kept wondering why he didn't just go straight from chapter 5 to chapter 8. I mean, why not? He's talking about the end of chapter 5, grace overcoming our sin, and it seems no better time to say, as Dave just read in corporate worship, 8 chapter 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But obviously, the Holy Spirit had other words for Paul to write before he directed him to write chapter 8. And since all Scripture is breathed out by God, as the Word tells us, we need to examine chapter 6 and chapter 7 closely. Now, Paul is going to ask three questions. He asks them kind of using the same words at the beginning. That's what we're going to focus on. He asks two of them in chapter 6, verses 1 and verse 15. And he's going to ask one of them in chapter 7, verse 7. And I think, guys, these questions are crucial to help us understand why Christians need the gospel in relation to our own personal sinning. So let's take chapter 6, verse 1 first. And remember, the end of 5, he's talking about how the grace of God in a relationship with Christ is going to overcome who you were in Adam. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Apparently, Paul felt that someone in the audience who would be reading this letter was going to have some concerns about the gospel in relation to connection with increasing grace leading to a licentiousness to sin. So he spends the next few verses talking about who a believer now is in Christ. And just from the language he uses, guys, he makes it clear that new birth for a believer in Christ cannot, cannot equal a license or a desire to be in a repeated, habitual state of sin. It is a spiritual impossibility. Look to what he says, verse 2. Basically, the believer has died to sin. Verse 3, the believer has been baptized into Christ Jesus' death. 
Verse 4, you've been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that you now have the opportunity, basically, to walk in the newness of life. Verse 6, your old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And he keeps on going with many more examples of who a Christian is in Christ. And he closes this thought out before he gets to verse 15. He gives a command. He commands these Roman believers to present their members as instruments for righteousness and to present themselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Guys, this is the first observation. It's very important for you not to miss this. Paul doesn't start chapter 6 out with the command to obey. He starts it out reminding believers exactly what God has done to them through the power of the gospel. If he would have started that section out with a command to obey because grace has increased, sin shouldn't increase, guys, it's almost like it would have been a form of legalism. But in reminding them of who they are in Christ first, he can then command obedience because true obedience is going to come from a redeemed heart. It's a heart that sings praises to the Father for what He has done to the believer in Christ. This is going to lead us into the next question that Paul asks in chapter 6, verse 15. Now remember from the context, from 12 to 14 we just talked about, He gave this command after He gave the gospel and reminded them of who they are in Christ. And then He ends it up in verse 14, basically saying that sin no longer consumes you as a believer. It has no dominion because... You are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And then in verse 15, he asks the same question. A similar question to verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul starts his response out from that with a statement. He doesn't give them a command. He doesn't give them the gospel. He just gives them a statement. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? What I think he's saying in this verse is that if you are an obedient slave to sin, you have never been changed by the power of the gospel. And right after that, guys, it's like the text comes alive again. Paul gives thanks to God for the power of the gospel in the believer's lives. He says, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What was the standard of teaching that Paul committed to these Roman believers? It was the gospel. That was the standard of teaching, was the gospel. And then watch what he does. Watch what he does very closely right after that. He does the same thing he did back in chapter 6, verse 12. He does it again in 6:19. He gives them a command. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Do you see the gospel in these two passages? He reminds them first of what God has done to them based off of who they are in Christ. And then comes the command. Are you starting to get the picture? Before we get to the uh, final what then shall we say question in chapter 7, I need to remind you of something. The reason for the command is because sin has not yet been eradicated 
in a believer's life. We're justified, yes. Are we new creation? Yes. We're no longer consumed by sin, but the capability to still commit personal acts of sinning, whether in thought or action, still exists. So leading up to this last question we're going to look at in chapter 7, verse 7. The context is Paul basically is telling these Roman believers they have died to the law through the body of Christ so they may now belong to Christ and not be under the condemnation of the law. Now when he says the word law, this basically it's the moral law of God. The way we would sum it up, we would say the commandments. What's the purpose of that? Now we often say the law points us to a Savior. That's true. But listen to what he says basically in verse, verse 5 of, of uh, chapter 7. The, the law basically stimulates or it excites, it arouses a passion in unbelievers. It arouses their sinful passions, causing them to bear fruit leading to death. But when one enters into a saving relationship with Christ, that's why Paul can say in chapter 7 verse 6, we are released from the law having died to sin, which held us captive. So we may now be able, have the freedom to truly delight in keeping His commandments only, 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 only because of the regenerating work of a Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And we'll read that one more time, guys. It's important you catch that. When one enters into a saving relationship with Christ... We are released from the law, having died to sin, which held us captive. So we may now have the freedom to truly delight in keeping His commandments. Only because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And then, this leads up to Paul's last main question we're going to look at. Chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Remember, he just got done talking about how the law arouses an unbeliever's sinful passions. And I think it's very important for us to see how he answers this question. He doesn't use the exact same format as the other two questions. He doesn't even give a command. I think in verse 7 through 12 of chapter 7, Paul's talking about his pre-Christian life. He talks about the purpose and the function of the law. Guys, the law isn't a means to an end. You don't obey it and it takes you where you need to go. Paul's point is that you can't obey it. It is so good and so pure and holy and righteous that it causes mankind's nature outside of a saving relationship with Christ to recoil from its very presence and do the exact opposite of what it demands. Have you ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? Have you ever heard that? That's kind of like what the law does. It helps say that to an unbeliever. Its purpose is to confirm what mankind's nature is outside of Christ. It shows us that we're sinners. It doesn't pat us on the back and give us some attaboys. It doesn't tell us how wonderful we are. It tells us how wretched we are. I think about Paul's example in my own life before I was a Christian. Look at what he says in verse 7, towards the end of it, in verse 8. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And I think about what it used to be like outside of Christ until God saved me when I was 23. 
My wife and I have talked in the past about our purchasing of goods before we knew Christ and how much money was wasted on those purchases that we no longer have. Guys, I don't want you to get the picture that I don't struggle with materialism. I still do, and that's another reason why I need the gospel. But it was a little bit different before I knew Christ. I can remember during that time that my desires almost always led to purchases that were grounded in self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and self-pleasure. They were never grounded with the thought, man, how is God going to receive glory through this? And these purchases, guys, they always led to an emptiness that would cause me to just covet more to fill that void. Now, this is where you've got to be very, very careful. See, this is where cultural Christianity will come in and say, this is who can fill that void. This emptiness in your heart. Just take a little tablespoon of Jesus and he'll make your tummy feel all better. Guys, that's not what Paul's saying right here in this text. He's pointing to that void or that emptiness, guys, as a spiritual death where sin rules and reigns and an unbeliever is going to need a lot more than just a tablespoon. The unbeliever is going to need the sovereign grace of God to wake them up from spiritual death in order that they can repent and believe the gospel. Now, if verse 7 through 12 seemed to be dealing with Paul before he was a Christian, verses 13 through 20 seemed to be dealing with the present tense for Paul at that time. He's a Christian now. Guys, I used to read that passage in 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or whom I am the chief of sinners. And I used to think that Paul was always talking about his pre-conversion days. You remember those days back when he threw Christians in jail, he approved of their deaths? He was fervent in his persecution of them. After reading 13 through 20, I don't think that is what he was talking about in 1 Timothy. I think Paul viewed himself as the foremost or the chief of sinners because he was so aware of sin in his own life as a believer. And the reason he was so aware is because he preached the gospel to himself. Guys, my ability to recognize sin in my own life is sketchy at best. I often start down the road and take seven different side streets just in my thought life before I catch it. I believe Paul had such a heightened sense of awareness of sin in his life that if I could compare it to a modern-day illustration, it would be like a band of thieves trying to break into Fort Knox. Alarms were constantly going off in Paul's mind. He did not catch it at all. He didn't let it take seven different side roads. He became aware of it right after it started, right when it took its first step on the road. And yes, that was a process. I don't think it happened immediately. But over his sanctification... I think that's what started to take place. Listen to some of the things that he says in these seven verses, 13 through 20. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. With that, guys, that's going to lead us into the final phase of this message. And if you notice, look where we're at. 
We're right back to where we started. Verse 21. Christian, you still have the residual effects of the sin nature in you. You don't have a sin nature. You've got those effects. You're not consumed by it. You're not in bondage to it. But we still have sin in our lives. Guys, this is why Paul says in verse 21 that he finds it to be a law or a principle that when he wants to do right, evil or sin lies close at hand. I have no doubt that there are those here this morning who are in a saving relationship with Christ and who delight in the law of God in their inner being. Just like Paul says he does in verse 22. You know his commandments are good. You know they're righteous. You know they're holy. You know he has made you a new creation in Christ. He's changed your desires and affections and motivations to want to please him. Not on a basis of works righteousness, but as a basis of a heart of praise for what he has done to you in Christ. But evil lies close at hand. And you start to see that you find yourselves doing or thinking things after the fact that are very opposite of the good desires that God has placed in you. Where do you run to when this first happens? Do you dismiss it altogether? Do you go to your accountability partner? Spend more quiet time in the Word? More time in prayer? Christian counseling, the list goes on and on and on and on. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You run to the gospel first. Guys, the gospel doesn't go on vacation. It doesn't call in sick. The gospel's not that friend that tells you he will be there at six to pick you up and he never shows up. Your Savior is in a never-ending state of defense before the Father on your behalf. The verdict is always not guilty. His righteousness that He clothes you in Never gets tired. Never needs a breather. Never needs to call a time out. Run to the gospel first and foremost when you have sin in your life. Guys, this personal sinning that we have as believers is just one. Just one of infinite reasons as to why a Christian needs the gospel. This is the transforming power that Dave talked about when he prayed. The power of the gospel in a believer's life. The gospel is what grows you in your sanctification. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. This is after he's already proclaimed it to them. They're already believers, and the gospel is what bears fruit and grows things in their lives. Guys, statistics show that most professing born-again Christians don't even share their faith. On the surface, it seems like we keep that gospel all to ourselves. The sad reality is, and I'm guilty of this myself, is we take that gospel and we put it on a shelf 
where it collects dust, and we don't even use it on ourselves. And what we don't even see is that if we used it on ourselves, when we decide to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified, the natural result is we're going to have to tell it to other people. Guys, it's been given to you for your benefit. It's been given to you from a heavenly Father who loves you dearly. If you are without Christ this morning and you're hearing this message, you are without hope. No amount of outward reformation in your life will ever result in an inward reconciliation before a holy God who is so holy and good. It is an possibility for someone who is sinful ever to come into the presence of this holy God outside of a saving relationship with Christ. Jesus Christ makes that possible. He can make that possible by taking your sin and giving you His righteousness. It's the only form of payment that an infinite, holy God can accept. Before we close in prayer, I will leave the unbeliever who may be listening to this message with a command. And if you notice, guys, the command comes after the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this gift, this gospel that we rest in, that our confidence is in, that our trust is in. But yet, Lord, we find that when we want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And we sin. And I confess to you, Father, I oftentimes do not run to your gospel. I do not run to remember who I am in Christ and what you have done on my behalf. Help us, Lord, to run to your gospel first. There's nothing wrong with the battle of sin in our lives. We are commanded to do that. But help us not to make them the first thing we run to. Help us to run to your gospel first. And I just ask, Lord, at this time, that your spirit do as it will in our lives. We praise you and we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.